Yes, all aboard. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. And the train is building up ahead of steam. So grab your ticket. It's free. Get on board. This train will be picking up passengers along the way. Taking you on a sports journey. So, enjoy the ride. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.kakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.kakeybums.com To enhance your workout, with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 $4.99 a month or $9.99 a month will get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table. And you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your conductor, Anthony Smith here, and it is uh, Saturday, March 27th, and we have quite a bit to get to. Uh, As a matter of fact, even as we speak right now, with 16 minutes and 26 seconds in the second half, uh, Oregon State has an eight-point lead. Mind you, this is a 12-seed Oregon State going up against number eight-seed Loyola of Chicago. And with 16.06 to go in the second half, that score is 33 to 22. So it looks like Oregon State, which is also another Cinderella team, is has expanded has expanded their lead in this round of Sweet 16. Also, other games coming up uh, shortly here after this one. I do believe we're looking at number five seed Villanova going up against number one seed Baylor. That game will be starting at 2.15 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, I believe that is. So that game might be already getting ready to get started here. Well, no. Then at 4.25, we have ORU, which is Oral Roberts University, to those that don't know, a 15 seed going up against a number three seed, Arkansas, at 24-6. And, and then the later on game, 
You have number 11, Syracuse, which some people are seeing them as upsetting the number two seed, University of Houston. Remember, five slammer gem. Sorry, y'all. Clyde Drexler and Hakeem Olajuwon is not on this team. But at 26-3, and three, number two seed, Houston, going up against number 11 seed, Syracuse. A lot of storylines. Uh, one of the big names, when you think Syracuse, you think of Coach Behan. But at the same time now, we're talking about his son, Buddy Behan, because oftentimes when you have the coach's son, he's basically just that, the coach's son. He's on the roster. He's wearing a uniform. He's not that good. But Buddy is dropping buckets, and we're not trying to steal infringements right from nobody else, but Buddy buckets, Buddy dimes, Buddy rebounds. So he's going to be one of the stars to watch in that game. But let's get on to some news. We're going to talk a little bit of uh, NCAA hoops. Looking at some headlines here. And there's quite a bit to get to here today on Saturday. College basketball in full swing. And when you stop and think about things, you know, we're saying college basketball in full swing. We're talking NCAA tournament. Just think about last year this time. When there was nothing going on when the plug had been pulled. And y'all have to excuse the the notifications. I need to find a way to silence that. And I think I'm going to do that like right now. If possible. What a rough way to start the show, but we're going to go on anyway, regardless. But there is a story that is brewing in nothing major sorts. But one of the questions is, what must Baylor and Houston do to advance to the Elite Eight? That is the question. What must Baylor and Houston do to advance to the Elite Eight? We pretty much expected Baylor to be in this position. But if you would have told me at the beginning of the season that we'll be talking about Houston in the NCAA tournament as a number two seed, I would have had to check your sources. So what we're going to do here is we're going to see what the experts say about what they think Houston and Baylor have to do to advance. And then I'm going to tell you what I think. So 
Here we go. Last hour, we sort of focused on the underdogs who have been pretty successful to this point. Let's switch to the favorites now, though. Starting with the top seed in the South, what does Baylor need to do to advance today? Well, Baylor's playing a Villanova team that has beaten a 12 and a 14 seed to get here, and they're playing without Colin Gillespie. So I think what Baylor needs to do is bring the pressure and make players that don't normally handle the ball handle the ball. Villanova is a deliberate, uh, low-turnover team, and Baylor's going to have to bring the heat. Baylor gets a lot of steals, forces a lot of turnovers. They score a lot off their defense with Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, Macy O'Tee. And I think they've got to do that. They've also got to guard the three-point line because Villanova's a good three-point shooting team. But Baylor is the better team here. I think they have to assert themselves and go out and prove it by speeding the game on the defensive end. If they can take care of Villanova, they'll reach their third Elite Eight in program history, first since 2012. Let's switch to Houston. Listen, they barely survived Rutgers last week, and now they get a hot Syracuse team. What does Houston need to do to go ahead and make the Elite Eight? Well, there are a couple things. One, against that 2-3 zone, one of the most debilitating things against the Syracuse zone is triple penetration. And I think uh, Houston's got to put the ball in the deck, penetrate gaps with one hard dribble, make pass fakes, but when they do get a shot up, they got to go offensive rebound. That's what they do. They rebound about 40% of their misses. That was right up with North Carolina as the best in the country all year long. Second shots is going to be a real key to this game. And they also have to defend Buddy Mayheim, who's been spectacular. Quentin Grimes has been almost as good. Last four games, he's averaging 20 points on 56% from three, and he's making almost five per game. All right, listen, the Cougars are, couldn't be hotter. Nine games. So there you have it. Uh, start with Houston. I happen to be in a region where I get to see Houston play. I'm here in Wichita, Kansas home of the Wichita State Shockers, and yes, we played them. And when he said the name Quentin Grimes, for Houston, that's who, that's who it starts with. It starts with Quentin Grimes. But like the SO said, Houston is one of those defensive-minded teams as well, too. Yes, they can score points, but they create a lot of points off of their defense. Like you heard him say, Villanova's going to be a deliberate snail's pace compared to, not Houston, Syracuse. All right. Let me get this. Let me get my facts straight. Crashing the boards. Houston is one of those teams that love to crash the boards. But they have to beat that 2-3 zone that Bayheim is known for. Now, Bayheim has always been, always will be, a zone guy. Even though... He, do, he does send players to the next level. And, you know, in the NBA, is basically one-on-one. But Beheim has lived and died and lived again by the zone defense. You're hearing a lot about that 2-3 zone. But he also used to hang his hat on that 1-3-1 one, one zone. And that's just as stifling as a man-to-man or matchup zone defense because – you don't see it's it's kind of like a football team that runs the wishbone or the option, and you're not used to seeing it. You're used to seeing pros down. So when you come up on something like this, it's like you can't even hardly practice for it because it's unusual. As is the case with whatever zone defense Bayheim employs. 
whether it's the one three one or whether it's the two three and the crazy thing is he gets the players there to buy into what he wants so how does houston beat this zone they got to try to like they said got to try to find gaps penetration but when they release their shot they're going to have at least two or three guys by the board because that's what they hang their hat on is the offensive rebounding. They're a decent defensive rebounding team too, but they hang their hat on offensive rebounds as well too, getting, creating second chances as well, third chances, crashing the boards, finding the gaps in that 2-3 zone because, trust me, they're going to see a zone defense like they've never seen before. I can say that unequivocally they have they're going to see a zone like they've never seen before all year long because they just don't see that in the american athletic conference baylor and villanova villanova is that going to be that team that sleeps walk or they will walk you to sleep they're going to play a deliberate pace slow down pace baylor's going to have to be patient on defense and not get frustrated baylor does create a lot of steals though So it's going to be a matter of two stubborn wheels going up against each other. Baylor can score points, and they like to do it off of their defense. As you heard, Villanova was without one of their key players. So now what you have to do is you have to pressure this team. Get the ball in the hands of people who's not used to handling the ball. String that pressure on them. Create steals. Create turnovers. If you speed up Villanova, chances are Baylor can walk away from this game with a blowout win. So now the question is, will the March Madness year of the underdog continue in the NCAA tournament sweet 16 and there's plenty of cases to be made for cinderella but let's do something here let's see what my good friend dick vital and company has to say just the second 15 seed ever to reach the sweet 16 what about this team impresses you most? Well, I'll tell you what impresses me. That one-two combination, Jay. Think about that combination. You know, they're beam down there at Oral Roberts. Expect a miracle. And, man, they've been getting miracles. Just a brilliant job against Ohio State. Brilliant job, certainly in the game against Florida. They're defending the three exceptionally well. They're making their free throws. They're really doing a super job making their free throws. And they're... Duo is unbelievable. When you think about Kevin O'Banner and you think about Max Basemus, those two guys have been on fire. Think about this. They had 59 points between them when they beat the Buckeyes. They had 54 between them when they beat Florida. What a combination. It's unbelievable. Think about this. Oral Roberts going right now in the Sweet 16, playing for a chance to go to the Elite Eight. And who did they play? Arkansas. Arkansas beat them during the regular season, beat them then, but now it's a different team. Eric Musman's got a team that hustles, scraps, 
fights. They really reflect his personality. That's going to be a heck of a game. But it's pretty tough to bet against these two kids, man. Ace Smithson certainly both better. Where are all the big schools recruiting these guys? I'm telling you, recruiting really amazes me. I think a lot of the big schools, they go after all those guys on those lists, Jay, and they don't really study and analyze so many other kids that can play. Happens every year. Happens every year. So they get Arkansas next on Saturday night. And then, Dick, there is Sister Jean in Loyola, Chicago, taking out the one-seed Illinois in the Midwest region. They've been here before making a Final Four run in 2018. What are you seeing when you watch this team play? What I see is a team that plays with passion, feeling. They defend exceptionally well. Remember this, Jay. They led the nation led the nation in scoring defense and the last 20 opponents have not scored so many points on them. Here they play Illinois, right? An emotional game. My old Chicago from the city, the Windy City, now gets an opportunity to play the Giant, play the unbelievable, highly rated team who's everybody talked about how explosive they are, certainly when you think about the Dosumu and you think about certainly the big guy inside Colbert, but they could not score. They couldn't get any run whatsoever against this Loyola team. The kid in the backcourt handled them. Pine tempo the game well. Harris, Williamson gave him some good production. And let's not forget the big guy. Brutwick uh, inside was sensational. He's so fundamentally solid. It's a term we use all the time. He knows how to play. Has good feel for the game. This is a legitimate basketball team. I'm telling you, it's a great story. And Sister G, she was doing this all game. Praying, praying, and praying. And those prayers really work, man. They really work, Jay. I'll tell you something. It's such a magical trip. And I know that feeling. I said this the other day, and I'll say it again. I coach University of Detroit. You know, we're a school down the road, Jesuit College. And we get a chance to play Michigan. My last game I coached in the Sweet 16, Lexington, Kentucky. The place going. It was televised. We had John Wooden do the game. Color, Kirk County doing the game. I'm a nervous wreck because we're never on TV. And we lose in the last minute. But it was such a big deal that David and Goliath, and that's what it is. And this club is moving on. They're for real, and Porter Bozer can flat out coach. And you just have to love Dick Vitale's energy. I, I listen to some local guys here in town, and for some reason, they just are not in on Dick Vitale. But the story goes like this as we move on. Brackets were busted all over the college basketball universes. March Madness enters the Sweet 16 with the likes of Oral Roberts, Oregon State, Loyola, Chicago, and even past heavyweights that were not supposed to have the firepower to make it here, such as UCLA and Syracuse, surviving and advancing to the NCAA tournament regional semifinals. At the same time, most of the cream has risen to the top. Number one seeds Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan which were the nation's three best and most consistent teams for most of the 2020-21 season, have their national title hopes very much intact during the weekend's contest. In advance of Saturday Sweet 16, that's a strange phrase to write, ESPN.com's college basketball team of Myron Metcalf, Jeff Borzello, John Gassaway, and Joe Lenardi weighed in on who would win the t- game's tug of war between the underdogs and acknowledged powerhouses while the big 10 and big 12 have struggled in this tournament 
And which team that we didn't think was a national title contender has the best chance to keep winning? So it said here, the Sweet 16 field reflects something of a year of the underdog in the NCAA tournament. Why do you think so many teams that were not supposed to be here have broken through? And do you expect to see any double-digit seeds in the Elite Eight? And here's what Metcalf had to say. He says, I don't know if there is a logical explanation, to be honest. I do think the truncated preseason and non-conference season meant that we didn't get the typical two-month snapshot of these teams. Think about Loyola Chicago. It's only Power 5 opportunity before the NCAA tournament came against Wisconsin. And the only reason that happened was Northern Iowa had to withdraw from its scheduled matchup with the Badgers due to COVID-19. So Loyola Chicago played on a short notice and lost by double digits. The lopsided nature of that game suggested the Ramblers couldn't play with the top-tier teams. But maybe it was just Porter Moser having only a few hours. The Ramblers have played Illinois, Chicago, 48 hours before that loss to prepare for a good team. With a traditional season, we might have had more time to see the flaws in these teams that could become greater challenges down the line. This explanation makes sense. Only if the chaos continues and the double-digit seeds cracks the Elite Eight. Although, it won't be an easy task. Syracuse might have the best shot simply because Houston hasn't faced, hasn't fared as well against the quality teams on his roster. Borzello had this to say. All season, we talked about how outside of Gonzaga and Baylor and at times Michigan, the rest of the country didn't really have too much separation. We've seen that play out during the NCAA tournament. Was there really a huge difference between Texas as a three seed and Oklahoma as an eight seed? Illinois and Loyola Chicago were separated by six spots at Ken Palm entering the NCAA tournament. I think the lack of an extended non-conference schedule and teams testing themselves outside of the league played a part in the difficulty in seeding compared to previous seasons. I also think everyone being on the same playing field in terms of travel and lack of crowds played a role. I'm not completely sold that we'll see any double-digit seeds in the Elite Eight. I think Oregon State and Oral Roberts will both fall in the Sweet 16 with the best shots for a double-digit seed advancing coming from UCLA and Syracuse. If UCLA can continue getting excellent perimeter production from Jamie Jaquez and Johnny Juzang, the Bruins will have a shot at Alabama. But I just think the Crimson Tide are too good defensively and can make too many threes to lose. Then there's Syracuse. Houston has struggled at times against zones this season, most notably Tulsa in the first meeting against the Golden Hurricane. But I think Kelvin Sampson having a few extra days to prepare should help. Then Gasway had this to say. Even among the double-digit seeds, maybe we're talking about two different levels of underdogs. Already on Selection Sunday night, for example, it was clear that ESPN.com's Giant Killers model loved UCLA's chances against BYU. Once the Bruins were in the round of 32, they faced a number 14 seed in Abilene Christian. A similar process has played out with Syracuse, which absolutely 
flamoxed San Diego State with his own defense and then survived a three-point game against West Virginia. By contrast, the real underdogs are arguably Oregon State and Oral Roberts. The Beavers have improved by leaps and bounds on defense at a really convenient time of year, while the Golden Eagles have ridden the one-two combination of Max Abrams and Kevin O'Banner. In short, ORU is here because those guys are great, but OSU's day and night transformation remains something of a mystery to this observer. Tennessee and Oklahoma State shot 20, just 24% on their threes, which would seem to indicate that Oregon State has been fortunate, yet those same opponents also missed their twos. March, go figure. Then Lenardi had this to say. I'm always amazed at the level of astonishment that accompanies NCAA tournament upsets. We often react like it has never <clears throat> happened before when, in fact, the upset is when it doesn't. Not to get all can palm or gas away on everyone, but a 70-possession game played by college kids is always going to have a lot more variances than, say, a 700-possession NBA playoff series played by grown men. I mean, the Pomeroy model gave Alabama Abilene Christian a 25% chance over Texas and Loyola Chicago a 35% chance over Illinois. I don't know how Ken weighs things like interstate bragging rights or Sister Jean scouting reports, but those aren't very long odds, even without the intangibles. If any of us were told there was one chance in three or four of becoming billionaires by jumping head first into a 45-degree ocean, we're all sprinting across the beach. Looking ahead, Ken Palm model gives UCLA the best chance to advance among the remaining double-digit seeds. But I'm going for Syracuse. Although Houston has to be considered a slight favorite to emerge from the Napoleon blown apart, get it, Midwest region, we've seen this movie quite a few times in recent years, and it's always Jim Beheim left smirking at the closing credits. This time with a buddy by his side. So there you have some comments that were quoted out by some of the experts and what they've had to say. And there's so much more that they had to say. But there's so much more to get to in my next segment. We're going to talk about who's next at Texas after Shaka Smart's exit to Marquette. Also, a look at the wooden watch, which wooden finalists has the most intriguing Sweet 16 matchup. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. This is your conductor, Anthony Smith. I'll be back after these messages. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to my next segment, and think about this. Abilene Christian knocks off Texas, and I'm still trying to get someone to give me an answer to this question. What constitutes a rivalry? Because prior to that game between Abilene Christian and Texas, those two schools had played absolutely zero times. But yet writers and some of the broadcasters were saying Abilene Christian knocks off their rival. 
I'm no guru and I'm no know-it-all, but I have enough sense to know this. That's not a rival. That was a Pepto-Bismol moment. That was an upset. And I made mention of the fact that I'm pretty sure now, after that upset Dean loss, that wasn't the only thing that was upset. There were some upset boosters. There were some upset alums. There were some upset administration people. And I had said that I imagine Shaka Smart's seat is getting very warm right about now. Well, the seat got so warm, he decided, you know what? I'm out here. I'm from Wisconsin. I'm going to take the Marquette job. So with that being said, who's next at Texas after Shaka Smart's exit to Marquette? We didn't see that one coming, didn't we? Shaka Smart accepted the head coaching job at Marquette on Friday, ending days of speculation about Smart's future with the Texas Longhorns. Smart's six-year tenure in Austin was a roller coaster right up to the final hill. He followed the Longhorns' Big 12 Conference Tournament title, the Lone Banner Smart won in six seasons there, with a shocking upset loss to Abilene Christian in the first round of the NCAA Tournament just seven days later. With Smart now entrusted with changing his recent NCAA tournament luck in Milwaukee, Texas turns its attention to identifying his successor in what will be one of the most coveted posts in college basketball in this carousel season or any other. ESPN took a look at the potential candidates at Texas, which will be making its second high-profile change this calendar year after firing football coach Tom Herman and replacing him with Steve Sarkeesian. So we will get that list pulled up here shortly. But I just want to stir the pot, so to speak. I want to throw a name out there. And I know anybody that listens to this will probably kill over laughing. You think Greg Marshall's name might end up on that list? Hey, I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. I'm, I'm hey. There's nothing concrete to what I just said. I'm just making a conversation piece. Is there a chance Greg Marshall's name is on that list? Granted with Everything that went on with him at Wichita State, the buyout or the partial buyout, and nobody really hearing what really happened except that he vehemently denied those, or as he say, unequivocally would not have done anything that he was alleged to have done. Would his name happen to be on that list? And if so, let's just use hypotheticals. Let's say Greg Marshall gets a job like that. I'm pretty sure practices will be closely watched, monitored, recorded. Because when you have those allegations and multiple people saying that you did what you said you didn't do, 
I can just about guarantee to you. If someone takes a chance on him, he's going to be under a microscope, under lock and key. If you sneeze the wrong way, if you talk the wrong way, you're going to get a reprimand and a three-game suspension without pay. That's just the nature of it. And since I'm bringing that up, is there any school out there looking for a coach that would even consider a Greg Marshall as a coach with all that went on, all that's behind? Just something to think about. How about the wooden watch? Who has a chance of becoming the wooden player of the year? Remains to be seen. But let's see if there's any comments on that. Which wooden finalist has the most intriguing Sweet 16 matchup? And that was highlight clips from Evan Mobley with a flush over Drake that sealed their fate. So seven of the 15 players on the final ballot for the 2021 John R. Wooden Award will be in the NCAA tournament action this weekend with three Gonzaga Bulldog stars, Corey Kispert, Kispert, Jalen Suggs, and Drew Tyne. Joining Baylor's Jarrett Butler, Michigan's Hunter Dickinson, Villanova's Jeremiah Robinson Earl, and USC's Evan Mobley. Trying to power their teams to the Final Four next week in Indianapolis. With that in mind, we With that in mind, let's take a look at the potential matchup in the Sweet 16. Which wooden award finalist second weekend NCAA tournament matchup or potential matchup would be most intriguing? I think the potential Elite Eight matchup between USC and Gonzaga would present a rare opportunity to see a pair of projected top five draft picks matched up against each other with a trip to the Final Four on the line. It's also an incredible showcase for both players. Some folks were asleep as USC's Evan Mobley earned Pac-12 Player of the Year honors and Gonzaga's Jalen Suggs put together a freshman season to earn a slot on the Associated Press All-America Second team. But the potential to the meeting in the Elite Eight between the two players is a pivotal pairing 
and a preview for what an NBA team with a high pick might get this summer when it selects one of the talents. Plus, it could be a good game, perhaps the first time Gonzaga gets pushed. You would think that a team will have to possess the ability to protect the rim and get second-chance opportunities. And USC has held opponents to a 41.4% clip inside the arc, the number one mark in America per Ken Palm. It's top 15 in offensive rebounding percentage. Mobley versus Suggs is a gigantic potential matchup. Another potential head-to-head matchup would be Mobley versus Drew Time in the regional final. Mobley is arguably the best defensive player in the country, and Time is one of the best post players in college basketball on the offensive end. Time has elite footwork and finds angles and spaces on the block, enabling him to outmaneuver his opponent in the paint and get a basket. He's skilled. He can make face-up shots. He can pass effectively. But Mobley is unlikely anyone is unlikely anyone he's faced all season. Mobley is long, can guard inside and out, is an elite shot blocker, and as one coach said, can contest two shots back to back better than anyone else he's seen. Gonzaga relies heavily on its ability to score in the paint and finish at the rim, but USC will put that to the test. In terms of Sweet 16 matchups, Hunter Hunter Dickerson going against Florida State's slew of big men. Seminoles are the biggest team in the country, and Leonard Hamilton will throw four or five guys at Dickerson during the course of the game. Can they wear him down? Or how about this right here? Jared Butler and Baylor take on Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Villanova. Butler has connected on just four of his past 19 tries from beyond the arc, but he's been typically brilliant at just about everything else. On both offense and defense, he and the back. He and the Bears will likely receive their first 40-minute test from the Wildcats, who are now very much running the offense through Robinson Earl. The sophomore totaled 40 points in his team's two wins thus far, and his 22-11 double-double against Winthrop also included six assists and three blocks. Those who gave up on Villanova when Colin Gillespie was lost for the season we're very much mistaken because Robinson Earl has picked up that slack. The winner of this game will be a clear threat to capture the national title. And there you have that. Some intriguing matchups to look forward to. Well, stay tuned. Because there's more to come. I think I'm going to dive into some NCAA women's basketball. So stay tuned. The train is just now building up some steam. This is Anthony Smith, your conductor. Be right back.
after this message. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.cakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.cakeybums.com To enhance your workout, with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to my next segment. And as I said, we'll talk some women's college hoops. And there is a topic of interest going on right now. The top coaches offer different opinions on whether NCAA women's basketball tournament should use all neutral sites. With the entire 2021 NCAA women's basketball tournament taking place at neutral sites this season because of COVID-19, pandemic, the oft-debated question of whether the event permanently should go all-neutral in the early rounds is being asked again. Some of the game's top coaches are in favor of it, but are concerned about attendance. In every other sport in the NCAA, you don't have neutral sites in the first couple of rounds, UConn coach Gino Ariema said, because it happens in men's basketball which is at neutral sites for the duration. People just assume it's supposed to happen in women's basketball. But it'd be terrible to have games at neutral sites and have what you have here now, a quiet gym. Of course, the reason the early round games this year were quiet, attendance wasn't allowed for them other than family and friends. From the Sweet 16 on, starting Saturday, the NCAA Women's game will allow 17% venue capacity for fans. But Ariema's point is that concern over low attendance has to be taken into account with any consideration of changing to all neutral site games. So if you could say the fans will show up, then I'm all for it, Ariema said. And I think that would be great for the game if we could do it. Let me just add this right here before I go any farther. All you got to do is see UConn women's name on the billboard, and you're going to have a decent crowd. So 
South Carolina coach Don Staley believes that teams earn the right to host the early rounds in their season long results, and that's a reward for them and their fans. Going all neutral would take that away, she said. Am I in favor of it? Nope, Staley said. That's what you work for. It gives an extra incentive during the season to pack the house. We draw a big crowd. We've been number one in attendance the past six years. Let's not take our game backwards. The tournament set the tournament's setup normally is to have the top 16 seeds host the first round, first and second round games, then have four regionals at neutral sites starting in 2023. The regionals will be at two sites rather than four. The NCAA has tried several different setups for women's tournament over the years, from 1982 to 2002. Top-seeded teams hosted early round games, followed by four regionals at pre-selected sites that weren't necessarily neutral as schools could bid to host them. The tournament didn't expand to 64 until 1994. In 2003, the NCAA went to pre-selected sites for the early round games. Schools could bid to host, but not for more than two years in a row. That resulted in more neutral site games, a change used from 2005 to 2008, brought even more neutral site games with early round games held at eight sites. The same setup as the men's tournament, except teams could play in sub-regionals they hosted. The 18-pod system ended after 2008, though, because of attendance concerns, and the tournament went back to 16 pre-selected sites. In 2015, the top 16 seeds began hosting early-round games again. Regionals have been at neutral sites since 2005, with the exception of 2014 when they were on campus sites for one year. Coaches objected to that, and the regionals returned to neutral sites. There are no guarantees that neutral sites would bring more upsets, though. At this year's tournament, there are six seeds outside the top 16 that made the regional semifinals. They are all number five or six seeds. As recently as 2018, there were two 11 seeds that made the women's Sweet 16, Buffalo and Central Michigan, by winning on higher-seeded teams' home courts. Still, some coaches think just the probability of more upsets makes a change worth considering. What makes the men's NCAA tournament what it is is those early-round upsets, Oregon coach Kelly Graves said. In the end, it's usually the better teams that make their way to the Elite Eight and the Final Four. But those early-round upsets are what makes the tournament great. It's hard enough for a 13 to beat a 4 or 15 to beat a 2. But then when you have to do it, on that higher seeds floor, it's next to impossible. With the way the game has grown, if you pick those spots wisely, I think you can grow and make it special. Louisville coach Jeff Waltz agrees, but also has concerns about attendance. He also added he would favor going to one regional site at some point. I think if you get one place to put a Sweet 16 and Elite 8 in, he said, and you can have a wonderful venue with some great basketball games. So, that's what's on the agenda for the women's.
and what are they going to do about their neutral site or possibly their home site? There's pros and cons in everything that you do. So you have to just weigh them out. Weigh out what the difference is. But I was serious when I said that. Let the billboard say Wisconsin is in this region or whatever the case may be. UConn women is usually going to draw a crowd. I didn't have the chance to, but when they were playing in the American Athletic Conference and they made their visit to Wichita, Kansas, Minus Gino Oriema. It drew a big crowd. I knew it drew at least 9,000. Probably drew more had Coach G been there. But he was conveniently sick that day. But I just think the women's game just need and as much as they do promote it, I think they can promote it a little bit better. So let me see what we have going on here right now. And this is the women's game going on right now between number six seed Michigan and number two seed Baylor with Two seconds left. Look like the game may be heading into overtime. But the score is knotted up with two seconds left. 63 all, Michigan and Baylor. So if anything happens between now and next, I will most definitely keep you abreast as to what's going on with that. Speaking of the women's, have a final for you. Number one, UConn knocks off Iowa, 92-70. Coming up later, another number one seed, NC State, will be taking on Indiana. That game will be seen on ESPN2. Also, number two seed, Texas A&M against number three seed, Arizona. That game is coming up later, immediately after the NC State-Indiana University game. Also on ESPN2. And I'm about to see if we have any scores to pass along with you. I am not seeing any scores except the one I just given you. So as of now, nothing has happened. There's one second left in the game. And I already have given you the UConn women's. What I can do is give you some of the top performers in the uh, Iowa-UConn game. As McKenna Warnock from Iowa, she led them with 20 points, 5 rebounds to assist. And Avina Westbrook from UConn, 17 points, 9 rebounds. Tennessee's leading UConn. And let me see here as we are
And here we go. We do have some highlights here. some highlights from Baylor, Michigan, and that game will be going into overtime as the fourth quarter ended. The game ended with the score all knotted up, 63 all. And from the looks of it, Michigan had to Fight to get this game in overtime. They put up 23 points in that fourth quarter. Here's how the scoring went. First quarter, Baylor wins it 16-13. Then they win the second quarter 13-10. They squeak by in the third quarter 18-17. But then Michigan outduels them in the fourth quarter 23-16, which is why the game ends up in overtime. So we'll I said, we'll keep you posted on that as things develop. I'm pretty sure some of y'all are wondering why would I take the time out to, well, Why would I take the time out to give the women some love? Why not? Not a guy. I have one friend. He listens to my podcast every now and then, and he he used to be here in Wichita on the radio show, and he's back south, but we're still good friends. But he would always say something like, "Any person that talks about women's sports on radio should be banned from radio," and I have to disagree with that. These women work their butts off to entertain people. And I've always had a theory. When my daughter was younger, we would go to Wichita State women's basketball games. And I guess we became a good luck charm because every time I showed up to a game with my daughter, they always won. I showed up one game without my daughter. And. One of the players came over to me and like, where's your daughter at tonight? I'm like, uh, she's with her mama. And it's so happened it was a game that lost. She said, well, you see, we lost. She said, in case you ever notice, whenever you come, you bring your daughter, we win. I'm like, don't be pinning that streak on my daughter. But the women's game is an entertaining game as well, too. No, you're not going to see the high-flying dunks, the high-flying alley-oops, but you're going to see some women playing the game with passion. Even if you take the NBA and the WNBA, even there's there's even a disparity in the pay scale. And I'll have to pull that up because I was astonished. There was another young lady who's been playing in the WNBA 
the same amount of time that LeBron James has been paying, playing in the NBA. Her pay is like $210,000. LeBron, I would just like to have his game check. So, with that being said, I think it's a travesty how we treat these women who all they're doing is just trying to entertain us the best they can, whether it be women's basketball, whether it be softball. The only time they seem to get some love is when it's the Olympics and it's the gymnastics or figure skating. I think they should get that same attention on the hardwood floor. Well, stay tuned. I have one more segment coming up. And when I come back, I'm going to wrap this up with some NFL talk. So stay tuned. The A-Train Sports Talk podcast is truly Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right. Driven by you, the listener who wants to support so click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.kakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.kakeybums.com To enhance your workout with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Welcome back to my final segment, and uh, we are going to talk a little NFL. We're going to talk some draft flanagling, so to speak, if that's the word you want to use, because a lot has taken place over the weekend. Some teams trading out, moving up spots. Makes for a very interesting NFL season. One of the first things, though, that I want to look at, and hopefully time will permit, if I have to squeeze another segment, then so be it. But the Cowboys, you know, that team, the Dallas Cowboys, you know, America's team, my favorite team, matter of fact, I went into my storage unit today and dug up my Emma Smith jersey that I'm going to be wearing proudly. But uh, Dallas have been making some moves and signing some players. 
First, I want to say is to those of you who thought that Jerry Jones lost his mind giving Dak Prescott all that money and then wondering what, what we're going to do about picking up players, go back and look at that contract once again and how that contract was structured. To all of those of you who were wanting Russell Wilson, you know who you are. Matter of fact, I'm a name drop. My boy Smokey, who normally joins me, and we're going to link back up. If we don't link up this weekend, which we probably won't, we're definitely going hard next week because I know he has a lot on his mind. I know he has some traveling he had to do. So I want him to be fully rested, mind fully cleared. You're still in my prayers. And the other name I'm going to drop, he has his own show called Run the Table. Rick Thomas. These two guys were very adamant about wanting Russell Wilson. Well, I just had to agree to disagree. I didn't want Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson fits just fine in Seattle where he's at. Now, due to the fact that there's a short list of teams he wouldn't mind being traded to if there was to happen, I'm pretty sure some feathers have been ruffled. Of course, to me, Russell Wilson still doesn't come across as the type of player that would ruffle feathers. But when you have an agent that's given these list of teams that your quarterback wants to play for and your agent works for you, yes, I'm good. I'm sticking with Dak. But there are some things I said that Jerry needed to address. The defense and the offensive line. So what does the signing of Ty Netsky does to the Cowboys' offensive tackle depth chart? The Cowboys shored up a critical area, but how does this position group look? The degree to which the offensive line of the Dallas Cowboys was decimated last season was so laughable that it brought up on tears of hysteria. Each game seemed to bring with it a new lineup, and far too many times the team was making in-game personnel adjustments. The line as a whole was hit pretty hard, but it was felt the most at the offensive tackle position. Fortunately, the team entered the new season with some added troops to the mix, thanks to another round of free agency and priority free agent signings. The Cowboys are expected to get healthier, but continue to reinforce this position group as they prepare for all types of outcomes. The draft has yet to come, but they have already taken steps to address the position in free agency with the signing of veteran Tyneski. What does this new signing mean for the depth chart? Let's run down the position and see just how equipped the 2021 group is looking for the upcoming season. The starters. When healthy, Teron Smith is still a very good left tackle. Let me repeat that again. When healthy, let me stop and read that slowly. When healthy, Teron Smith is still a very good left tackle who can hold up against the best edge rushers in the league. Unfortunately, being healthy hasn't been a regular thing for the 10-year veteran. 10 years, offensive lineman, that's aging. The typical three games missed turned into 14 games last year. 
And as nice as it is when he's on the field, that is no longer something the team has been able to count on. Smith is only 30 years old, but as a famous archaeologist looking for a lost ark once said, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Leo Collins, while Smith missing time was somewhat expected, the loss of the younger Leo Collins took us by surprise. In her last year, he had only missed one game over the previous three seasons. However, last season, he never made it on the field as a hip injury sidelined him for the year, delivering quite the blow to the bookends of the Cowboys' offensive line. Despite how bad things were last year, Stephen Jones has full confidence that these two will be good to go this season. As he said, the injuries that Smith and Collins had shouldn't be a factor. He then put his money where his mouth is, as both those guys had their contracts restructured this offseason to free up cap space for the upcoming season. That doesn't guarantee anything in terms of health, but it does show you the faith the front office has in their ability. The signers. Tyneski. After the Chaz Green Byron Bell debacle of 2017, the Cowboys have done a great job addressing the swing tackle position in each of the last four seasons. First, it was the sign of Cameron Fleming in 2018, who they re-upped in 2019. This essentially cost the Cowboys $2.4 million 2018, $2.97 million 2019, just to give them some insurance on the edge. It's a good thing, too, because Fleming started three games at left tackle in each of those seasons. The team let him go in free agency as he signed a one-year deal with the New York Giants for $3.5 million, where he ended up starting all 16 games at right tackle. The Cowboys replaced one Cameron with another as they signed Cam Irving to a one-year $2.5 million deal last offseason. In a year that saw six different players filling at tackle, five of which missed time due to injury for the Cowboys. Irvin came in handy starting in five games before succumbing to injury himself. He was rewarded with a two-year, $10 million deal with the Carolina Panthers. Being the swing tackle in Dallas has its advantages. This offseason, they again went after a veteran swing tackle by signing Tyneski to a one-year, $1.7 million deal. Nesky has proven himself to be a very reliable tackle for many years, and while he's no spring chicken at 35, he immediately lands as the team's top reserve tackle on the roster. And considering the cost, that's a very nice signing by the front office. Zach Martin, it's nice to have the all-pro right guard play at right guard, but desperate times call for desperate measures. After undrafted free agent Terrence Steele continued to struggle securing the edge, the team finally moved Martin outside to help fortify the offensive line. And it shouldn't be all that surprising that Martin was really good at tackle, too. After all, he did play tackle at Notre Dame before transitioning into one of the best guards in the NFL. While the odds of seeing Martin at tackle again this upcoming season isn't great, we have to at least acknowledge that he's still one of the best tackles this team has on the roster, on their roster, and know that he's an option if it comes to that. Still developing, the rookie. Well, the Cowboys drafting a tackle early is perceived as wasteful or genius, depends on the future health 
of their current starters. Regardless of perception, this team should come away with a new starting caliber tackle by the first two days of the draft. Not because of need, per se, but just because of the great selection of talent. If they end up scoring a player like Penny Sewell or Rashawn Slater, then they'll either have a talented player to fill in for another injury, or they can stack the deck should the veterans stay healthy. Imagine a starting offensive Imagine a starting offensive that looked like this. Left tackle, Tyron Smith. Left guard, Sewell Slater. Center, Tyler. Right guard, Zach Martin. Right tackle, Leo Collins. Even if they don't take one of the two studs with pick 10, there are going to be some very good players available on day two as this draft class is rich at the tackle position. There are roughly eight starting caliber tackles ranked in the top 50 players from this draft, meaning there could be some great steals in rounds two and three for teams in the market for an offensive tackle. Brandon Knight, as promising as UDFA Brandon Knight looked in his one start in 2019, it was even more impressive to see him start nine games for the Cowboys last year. The youngster is certainly no Teron Smith, but he held up pretty well. When a backup can come in and hold the left tackle position, that's huge. While he was more comfortable on the left side, the team moved him over to the right side in the middle of the Cleveland game. Teron played in that one. After Miles Garrett was abusing, still for two sacks in the first half. With the second one leading to a fumble recovery, for the Browns. After Knight replaced Steele, after Knight replaced Steele, there was no more sacks from Garrett. If the Cowboys return to better health, Knight could be a guy that gets lost in the mix, but his development is coming along nicely as he's already proven himself viable in some challenging circumstances. Terrence Steele, like Knight before him, still has another UDFA roster surprise as the Cowboys had no interest in letting good tackles get away. And while still received the brunt of most of the criticism along the offensive line last season, at times he wasn't all that bad. If the Cowboys have to roll him out as starter, it's certainly going to be concerning for fans. But for a guy who is way down the depth chart, he's not a bad player to have on your roster. And what's to say he doesn't show a nice jump in year two under offensive line coach Joe Philbin? In fact, the Cowboys have such depth at tackle, especially if they draft another one, that still might make some nice trade fodder come roster cuts that could be used to help strengthen another area of the roster. So there you have a look at the Cowboys and their needs on that offensive line so hopefully they can get that problem solved with their offensive line because not only are they making moves on the offensive side let's just go ahead and say this segment is going to be dedicated to the dallas cowboys and we will get to some other draft news on another show but we're going to end this with some more cowboys news as 
source says the Cowboys signing Kazee passing on Hooker. Kazee's visit on Wednesday here at the Star in Frisco went well, especially the medical testing that gives him the nod over Hooker. The Dallas Cowboys, long known for not prioritizing the safety position, just gobbled up three NFL free agent newcomers at the position, a source telling CowboysSI.com that DeMonte Kazee has been added to a collection already featuring Canoe Neal and Jerron Curse. Kazee's visit on Wednesday here at the Star in Frisco went well, especially the medical testing. A source says that the reason he is getting the nod via a one-year contract over Malik Hooker, who, contrary to reports, was never offered a deal by Dallas. The Cowboys have already locked up former Atlanta Falcons strong safety Neal to rejoin his former coach, Dan Quinn, in Dallas. With the new Cowboys coordinator, an important part of bringing the 6'1", 216-pounder to town to play a sort of hybrid position that will ask him to work as a linebacker and a safety. Neil, 25, has pedigree as a first-round pick of the Falcons in 2016 out of Florida. Dallas also signed Curse to a one-year deal. He is mostly a special teamer, but at 6'4", 216, and with background as a safety, he too could serve as a hybrid behind Neil. The search was then on for help at free safety. Kazee, 27, is also a Falcons X and a ball hawk, but despite his penchant for takeaways, he recorded seven interceptions in 2018. The former fifth rounder is smallish, 5'10", 184, and he's coming off an injury issue as he tore his Achilles tendon in week four of the 2020 season. The Cowboys came away satisfied with his rehab. Hooker, 24, was a college superstar at Ohio State and was an instant hit for the Indianapolis Colts as a first-round pick in the NFL draft. But injuries have slowed his career, like Kazee, Hooker tore his Achilles ending his 2020 season. But the rehab has seemingly been slower, a slower process for him. Therefore, the Cowboys, who still employ Donovan Wilson at the position, but are likely turning the page from Xavier Woods, have made their choices New choices with safety candidates that suggest that new defensive coordinator Dan Quinn, who had Kazee and Canoe in Atlanta, wants quality from guys who have played safety and wants some of his own guys to help out. So the battle lines have been drawn, and who wants what and who gets what they want, well, that will remain to be seen. But look like we're going to see some improvement on the defensive end for the Cowboys. Lord knows they needed it. Thank God they got rid of that last defensive coordinator that they had. But it's obvious they addressed two issues that need to be addressed badly. Offensive line and some help along the defensive back line. And then if you get players playing in their rightful positions, unlike they were last year playing out of position, that was defensive coordinator's fault. I think you're going to see an improved defense and most definitely an improved offense. You have your main piece in place. You got your quarterback. I look for this team to win the NFC East. And I have to say that my partner, Smokey, he he, he won me over. I think maybe our biggest competition in the NFC East, and that's not saying much, will be 
team formerly known as the Redskins, now known as the Washington football team. Why can I reference Redskins? Because I'm not under a gag order. So the NFC East race basically is going to come down to the Washington football team and the Dallas Cowboys. And I think Cowboys can come away with a 10-win season this year, winner of the NFC East, and possibly a playoff win or two. We just have to see how things play out. Well, this has been another episode of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. I'm glad you could listen to it. Uh, Like it, share it. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast. You can listen to it on Anchor. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. It's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, Building Up Steam. Hopefully next week I can get some guests on, get my co-hosts back. But until the next time, take care of yourself and each other. Have a blessed weekend. I'll be back Monday giving you some recaps on NCAA tournament basketball. So until then, A-Train, signing off. Thank you for listening to today's portion of the A-Train Sports Talk podcast with your conductor, Anthony Smith. Today's show was sponsored by Cakey Bums, the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Check them out at www.cakeybums.com. That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com. Also, Hood Fessionals, where even though you're from the hood doesn't mean you can't be professional. Check them out at www.hoodfessionals.com. INC.com. That's hoodfessionalinc.com.